you know, eventually when I worked up the courage to talk to my parents about it and visit the school, I felt really happy about the choice that I made because now I'm doing something that I love. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. For this episode, I had a nice long conversation with multi-instrumentalist Armin's Araman. We covered many things, such as what I would consider a unique inspiration to start playing music, his path to becoming a violin maker, and the approach he and his partner Ben take to playing traditional folk music. As always, I truly appreciate you taking the time to check this out. Uh, If you'd like, please follow at LivingRoomUTB on Facebook and Instagram to see some photos, show flyers, and more from Armin's time in music. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in West Warwick, Rhode Island. So okay. just 20 minutes or so south of where we both are sitting. Yeah, <laughs> which is Providence, Rhode Island, like Mount Pleasant, Providence, Rhode Island. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, what was it like growing up there? West Warwick, to me growing up, was my parents' house. My middle school, St. Joseph's, uh, that private Catholic uh, middle and elementary school down the street. Yeah. Uh, and the Warwick Mall, and that's it. And, and the Rhode Island Mall from the before, before times. <laughs> to get my Santa picture taken. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when did music come into your life then? Uh, so I guess <clears throat> technically music's sort of always been in my life, yeah. uh, but as far as me playing an instrument goes, the first time that ever happened was the whole, was it third or fourth grade recorder? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that didn't go well, um, which is kind of the usual story. Uh, and then didn't pick up anything for a long time. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't until my freshman year of high school uh that i took a fiddle uh yeah yeah fiddle so there's kind of like a roundabout way of it where uh the summer no oh no sorry so the summer after my freshman year of high school i decided to start taking tai chi classes Uh from uh this tailor shop that was that's right next to was it called like world liquors or something right in garden city uh and so i would take tai chi lessons uh and there was one day where my dad was paying for the lessons and i was looking at their like board of things that they offer Mm -hmm. uh, which included like ballet and guitar and knitting and crocheting somehow and all these things uh and one of the things was uh violin yeah and so i switched from tai chi to violin uh and uh anna anna lau was the woman who taught me and she actually uh she never she never played the instrument uh 
herself. Like she never demonstrated, she never picked it up, but her son had taken Suzuki lessons, uh, back in the day. And she happened to have his old violin, like in the closet of the tailor shop. Uh And so she taught me how to play violin from what she remembered from those Suzuki lessons. Wow. Yeah. So I, (laughs) I like learned from her for like half a year and, uh, it was, it was like super exciting. I loved it. And I think the reason why I was super enthusiastic about it was that like my parents didn't make me do it. I was the one who made uh-huh. that choice. Um, and that's how it all kind of happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What, like, what do you think inspired you to, to choose the violin? Like, were you listening to violin music? Were you listening to like, um, and uh, you can remember that like drew you to that particular instrument? It might have been anime. <laughs> really? I think so. I think like, cause it was, uh, my freshman year, uh, I went to LaSalle Academy in Providence. So uh-huh. around the corner from us, yeah. uh, I didn't get that far away. Uh, <laughs> so with my friend group at that time, it was all about anime, Japanese rock and pop, uh, and uh-huh. anything related to that. Uh, this is way before the days of K-pop. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it must have been from some of those bands where they like featured strings. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? And the other thing too is probably video game soundtracks. Okay. Like stuff from Final Fantasy uh and and Final Fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but there's just some really beautiful uh pieces in video game soundtracks. Okay. Uh, and for me, it was probably like Final Fantasy IX, Final Fantasy X. Uh, and so it was, I was like heavy into video games during that time. And then like anime, J-pop and J-rock. And so when I was looking at that, that board of things that the, uh, uh, the tailor shop offered, mm-hmm. uh, I think I was under the impression that the violin was this ancient old instrument that only the super rich can play or something, Mm -hmm. or it was just like, you know, it's just something that wasn't a realistic option for me Mm -hmm. to take up just because, uh, the, the schools that I went to had no real music programs. Yeah. You know? Uh, so, so I was super excited about that and I didn't realize that like, Oh, this is a thing I can actually do. And so that was my main motivation for switching over to violin. Well, that's cool. Yeah, so I think the thing that kept me motivated to keep on playing was not only uh, the stuff from the Suzuki books that I was working on, but also just video game themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never, I actually haven't thought about that. That's so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So where did you continue on after? those lessons you, you said it was like you know like about six months or so that you were doing them at the at that shop like, yeah so then after that i started taking lessons from uh jeremy oh god i'm looking at his last name uh but he's a violinist and violist in the rick orchestra uh and he taught violin and viola at jr music in warwick Okay. Uh, so right by the Christmas tree shop, I think. Yeah. Uh, Pepperidge Farms. Yeah. Or maybe where the Pepperidge Farms used to be. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, Precisely. Yeah. We got to get that in. 
once every interview. So thank you. You've got it out of the way. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got uh, I took lessons from him for a while, but at the same time, uh, like around that time, so a year, half a year later, uh, I was in the photography class at LaSalle Academy, and photography class was always before string ensemble, which I was also in. So I'd okay. always uh, go to the club and then drop off my violin by the door and do the photography things. And then at some point, uh, Mr. Connors, who's the teacher there, uh, Bill Connors, he just like noticed the violin. He's like, oh, would you be interested in starting a Celtic arts club with me? Uh, and it's like, I have no idea what celtic arts are but i want to if it means i get to play then sure i'm gonna do that and so he was the one that introduced me to irish music because he was taking fiddle lessons from a guy in cranston named jimmy divine i'm not sure if you know him or have you heard of do you know hannah divine oh yeah yeah so hannah's father jimmy okay what uh became my fiddle teacher Oh, nice. Yeah, in Irish music. And so that's how I met Hannah, because uh, Jimmy would teach group lessons. Uh, uh-huh. and Hannah and I were in the same group class. Wow, cool. Yeah, and so at the time, like, I, I just liked the idea of playing music. You know, anything mm-hmm. was good enough for me, as long as I could read the music. Uh, and before I started taking lessons from Jimmy, uh, he said... Or I had found out that he would host house concerts mm-hmm. at his house. Uh, so uh, went out one night to see a group that was from out of town. And uh, they were playing traditional Irish music. So there was uh, three people. There was Tina Leck, Dana Lynn, and Junji Shiroda. And Tina Leck from Rhode Island, former student of Jimmy, uh, but from quite a few years before me. Um, and she's, I believe she's Thai and Dana Lin, she's Vietnamese and Junji Shiroda, he's Japanese. And so all three Asian musicians playing Irish music and they call themselves the rice patties, okay. which is an amazing, like the best band name I've for Irish music ever. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe just any, any band. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so that was like my first time hearing Irish music was by three Asian musicians and I'm Filipino. So uh, that was that definitely made an impression on me. Yeah, and that was yeah. kind of like my my main motivator for really pursuing it. Yeah. So those doing, were you playing at some of those house shows then, or? Uh, no, never. I wouldn't like be performing for quite a while at that point. Um, okay. But I would I would go to all the house concerts there. Yeah. Uh, because I'd never gone to house concerts before. They were super fun. You know, you got to meet everybody in the community uh hang out get to meet the performers and just play tunes with them afterwards yeah Uh, okay yeah it was just like uh such a such a nice and welcoming vibe and community i really i really enjoyed that that's awesome yeah the before times (laughs) (laughs) yeah getting together with people you know (laughs) yeah 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 i miss that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so then um, when did you start performing uh, yourself? Uh, So I started, technically started performing at sessions around Rhode Island. 
Uh-huh. So the first session I ever went to was at Ward's Public in Warwick, Rhode Island, or is it West Warwick? I forget. It's it was down the street from me. Yeah. Um, and a fiddle player named Brad Maloney. He was the one who told me about it. Uh, and so I started uh-huh. going to this restaurant bar when I was like fourteen or fifteen. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, back when like back when smoking indoors was still a thing, which is such a such a strange thing to think about now yeah um and then about maybe a year or so later i started going to patrick's pub and yeah and yeah, on smith yeah. street uh and so i guess that was technically like performances for me uh yeah then before i went off to college i went to berkeley college of music in boston uh i started uh hosting the irish session at rira okay yeah, so that's that's kind of like where I got my start. And then being at Berkeley, I, you know, had a number of very random gigs. Uh, and also, you know, like St. Patrick's Day would roll around in Boston. So I would go out and play a few of those, play a bunch of weddings, yep. you know, whatever, whatever people would pay me for. Yeah. And were you still uh, drawing upon like Irish music uh, mostly or were you starting to bring in other types of influences? Uh, so yeah, it was, I was going pretty hardcore Irish for quite a while. And then, yeah, yeah, freshman year at Berkeley in 2007, spring of 2007, uh, I met all the other folk musicians at Berkeley. So I didn't really, Mm -hmm. I only really played and associated myself with fiddle players. Oh, really? Uh, But that's where like, I first heard Swedish music, uh, really got my hands on like bluegrass uh-huh. Uh, some old time like Scottish tunes, uh, kind of just a little bit of everything. Old time, I was in the old time ensemble at Berkeley. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and so a, a lot of those, or uh, uh, playing with a bunch of those folks, I I definitely uh, picked up little little bits and bobs, and uh-huh. I, I still kind of have that in my playing now. Yeah. So what drew you to to Berkeley then? Was it? Um, I mean, it's, it seems like a pretty awesome jump from picking a class off a list to uh going to berkeley (laughs) yeah yeah it was i think by the time i had applied i was only playing for like two and a half years uh and my teacher was like uh i'm not sure if you're gonna get in or if you should apply and like you know that's totally understandable like you know someone playing for a as long as I had at that point. Uh-huh. Um, but the other thing that I had since learned is that Berkeley has a very high acceptance rate. <laughs> oh, okay. They, they like money. Um, and they need to pay for expensive buildings and equipment. Um, but uh, I did go and I auditioned and like got a scholarship and all that. But one of my main motivations for going uh, was <clears throat> I wanted to pursue music education uh, okay. Sort of kind of a typical route, especially for people who want to go to Berkeley. Most people just want to do like performance or uh, like music production and engineering. Yeah. Uh, but I figured that if I had just said I want to major in performance, like my parents definitely wouldn't let me. So so I made sure to try to find something that was practical and maybe uh-huh. get a job. So the ultimate goal for me was to get a degree in music education and then go back to LaSalle and be a music teacher there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, 
clearly that didn't happen, <laughs> which I'm, I'm totally fine with because I wouldn't be where I am now. Um, yeah. And the other reason was that Boston, big Irish music population mm-hmm. uh, and a pretty good and strong community there. And so I had a, like a couple of ins. So I also wanted to be in Boston for like the social music outside of school. Yeah. Uh, were you starting to learn other instruments when you were there? Um, at Berkeley? At Berkeley, yeah. I mean, I know you play other instruments now. Yeah. Um, um, so I think before I left for Berkeley, I had taken up the banjo, Clawhammer, uh, like five-string oh, banjo. Awesome. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was dating uh, a guy at the time. We dated for like a month. We broke up. I broke up with him through via text which was such a high school thing to do (laughs) Uh, and then the next day i went out and bought a banjo from wakefield music (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is you know obviously that's what you do uh and so yeah so i started teaching myself climber banjo so i kept that up throughout uh, a good chunk of berkeley uh Mm -hmm. and because i was in music ed i had to take a bunch of other instrument classes so i took a few semesters of piano Mm -hmm. um and i don't really do much piano now i can do like the one famous theme from final fantasy 10 and uh a billy joel song (laughs) yeah that's like nice and slow and not too complicated <laughs> um it, but it does give the impression that like it makes it sound like i know how to play piano but i actually don't yeah. uh, so well, now everyone's gonna know because they're gonna hear this yeah and and like <laughs> i also ended up playing piano on two tracks of our latest release mm-hmm. uh and that was not intentional at all <laughs> no what do you mean like just it, it well, needed something else and, and you said let's just throw something uh, on it well or? we didn't really know that it needed it but we were so uh we recorded our album at stable sound studio in portsmouth yeah. and this is with with the box hunters correct yeah, yeah yeah um and in the room where uh we would record vocals i'd be like recording my harmonies and because we'd just be running the track through mm-hmm. um i would be standing right next to the piano and i go oh well i have you know, like 20 seconds to just plunk away. So I'm just going to do this just for the shits and giggles. Yeah. And, and then we all kind of realized like, Oh, this actually sounds pretty cool. Maybe we should do this. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to like dig back in my, in my <laughs> piano brain, just trying to like, remember how to play piano. And yeah. like when I was practicing at home, like it sounded pretty good. And then by the time we got to the studio, it was just, it was a rough day. Oh, really? Trying, Trying to, to like down. record on like a real piano in time. It was, it was a bit of a nightmare, but we got through it. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I am glad that I did get some like formal piano training at Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And then like, I also took up a uh, trumpet for a semester and that didn't go well because the mouthpiece seal was like, broken or something and my lip got exposed to the nickel and so i had like a really bad reaction to it it, like my lips got super chapped for like two or three weeks it was really bad so i didn't really take up trumpet yeah well you seem like you're pretty uh pretty good at all these strings anyway so 
Uh, yeah, I'll stick with the strings. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like I did. Like I do semester flute. That was that was okay. Uh, yeah. But I also uh, play tin whistle too. Yeah. And that's much easier because of the mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, how long were you uh, at Berkeley? Uh, I was there for five semesters. Okay. Yeah. So I, let's see, after the first three semesters, I was pretty miserable. I, I, I'm pretty sure I was like depressed at that point. Uh, like the thing that the highlight of my week while I was there during my second and third semester was when you can rent two DVDs for one at the Blockbuster on Mass Ave. (laughs) And I would do that. I would I would either get like some obscure anime film or some like foreign gay drama or something and mm-hmm. eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's. And that was the highlight. Um, which, college is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, college is great. And I lived in a studio apartment. And so that was just like by myself. It was miserable. Um, but uh, so I even I I applied to Rick. I even got in and I was about to transfer. Uh, but you know, I just happened to take, uh, I signed up for the Celtic ensemble at Berkeley and it was there where I met a few other friends there or people who would become my friends, my really good friends. Uh, and it was, it was pretty much that just hanging out with other people that kind of saved me from dropping out the first time. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I started taking music ed classes and realized I didn't want to be a music teacher anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. And so that's why I ended up dropping out after my fifth semester. I uh, I applied and transferred to the University of Limerick in, in not Rhode Island, Ireland. Ireland, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, and so I ended up going there in 2009, I think. Uh, I did the, I attempted to do the Irish music performance degree there absolutely hated it it was a terrible program no one ever go uh don't even go to limerick in ireland it's a terrible place um <laughs> i will tell you other places to go that are much yeah. better like what was Warren the idea to, to go to ireland and just be like all right this is going to be the place where all the music that you're playing all the music that you're into is from so it's going to just be that type of like learning from the the, the motherland so to say and it just did not yeah. line up with that idea. Yeah. 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 That, that was, that was the initial idea. And like at prior to that point, I had been going to Ireland like once a year, like every summer. Oh, okay. Uh, so I was pretty familiar with just like traveling around there by myself. So yeah. uh, I wanted to go because I knew people there. It was going to be a degree in Irish music and I didn't know what else to do. So uh-huh. uh, that's why I went out there and I only stayed for one semester it was it was so bad. I'm not sure if I said one year, but it was just, it was just the fall semester. Oh, okay. And, uh, I also got a little depressed there. It was bad. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I still did have a pretty decent time. I like had somehow I had a gig like every weekend in a mm-hmm. different part of Ireland, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely had some like strange gigs out there, uh, yeah. and it was it was a time. Then I dropped out and I moved back to Providence.
I was in Rhode Island for a semester and then applied to the North Bennett Street School in Boston for the violin making program. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, I, was, I was interested to find out how you got into making violins. Uh, yeah, it, it basically involved me going to different schools and dropping out a lot. And so Three's a Charm, finally. Yeah. Uh, found like the right fit and I knew it was the right fit because uh I I spent uh I visited the school and spent like a few hours there and mm-hmm. I already met like two fiddle players in the program. One of them was outgoing and was about to graduate but still in contact with her, Rose Clancy out in Chatham, uh Massachusetts. She's super awesome. And then there's Cedar Stanistreet who we were uh classmates for about like a year and a bit mm-hmm. but it was like a small class and i really enjoyed hanging out with them got to play tunes with them got to yeah. chat violin making uh and it was really nice to meet other people who also just had fairly indirect paths oh, okay um a lot like everyone that was in the program for the most part had gone to college and decided actually what I did was not the thing I want to pursue anymore or yeah. like, um, or it was just like a, you know, a bit of a lost soul <laughs> sort of uh-huh. situation, which was the category that I fell into or somewhere in between. Uh, and before I applied for the school, uh, I was, I was a little, hesitant about it because it's not a typical college like you don't get a degree you just get a diploma uh okay and so there's like this you know it felt kind of taboo the idea of going to a craft school or a trade school Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know eventually when i worked up the courage to talk to my parents about it and visit the school i felt really happy about the choice that i made Mm -hmm. uh, because now i'm doing something that i love and struggling at the same time, but I still love it. <laughs> yeah, what is it like being a violin maker these days? Uh, well, these days, I definitely don't have any work coming in. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of fine at the moment because I decided I was going to go on like sabbatical, quote unquote sabbatical, uh, okay. for a few months because I wanted to try making a five string violin. Uh, and so in order to do that, I just need, you know, time to myself and I just need to hunker down and just get it done. Uh, so the pandemic actually makes it easier for me to be more productive because all my gigs are canceled. So I'm actually making some really good progress on the fiddle, uh, for some hiccups, but like being a violin maker in the before times, uh, it was, it was pretty nice. Uh, just because I'm, since I'm also a musician that plays out and I also play my own instruments, um, I'm able to come in direct contact with folks who may need some work done. Oh, okay. Uh, so that, that's kind of, that ends up being the bread and butter. Cause you do like repair here. type stuff as well, right? Yeah. Repairs and rehairs. Uh, those are the things that are going to pay a lot faster than making. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, how long does it typically take you to make a, a violin? When I'm doing lots of repairs and I have a commission, it almost takes like a year or something. 
because that's not only uh, repairs and adjustments and rehairs, but it's also gigs. It's also uh-huh. teaching and like traveling and, you know, random things like that. It's so it can be really tough trying to find time ever to make an instrument, but now is actually working out really well. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, normally somewhere between like four to six months. Oh, okay. Yeah. To make one. And so far I'm in that window, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Definitely makes me feel good. <laughs> and how was that process? Like, how was it working with your customers and um, making your violins and like, what makes your violins your violins? Like, is there a unique touch that you're bringing to them or? Yeah, definitely. Uh, when, when you're in violin making school, you know, you kind of have to stick to the traditional uh, violins, the ones that everyone's trying to copy because they, they are worth copying because, you know, the, the reason why strads are strads are because they're made really well. They sound amazing. Yep. And that's why whenever you look at a violin, you pretty much if you if you it, it, with uh, like factory instruments, if you look inside and you look at the label, it most likely will say something along the lines of like Kremini's copy or copy of a Strad or the Strad model violin. Oh, okay. Uh, because Strads are you know worth millions. So if you yeah. put, if you label something as a Strad, then it's gonna it's gonna be more likely to sell. I got gotcha. Yeah. I guess is the thinking, but you know you can only attempt to paint the Mona Lisa so many times <laughs> and yeah. you know, there, there are definitely things worth copying and emulating. Uh, but I just, I'm so bored by strats. They're like mm-hmm. the actual instruments themselves are beautiful and I love looking at them, but I'm just, I don't know. They, they bore me. <laughs> they really do. I really love, um, branching out and not, being around uh, the person that I learned under, it it feel it still feels like semi like taboo to try something different. But okay. that's all I've. That's mostly what I've been doing for the past like two or three violins. It's just I figuring out like what works for you and like. Yeah, yeah, just figuring out. Yeah, yeah, figuring out what is the thing that makes my violins my violins. And there's really no set thing right now. I'm totally open to trying new things out. Uh, So for my last violin, uh, so, you know, if you look at a scroll, uh, so the head of the violin, they kind of have like those two little divity things. Okay. Yeah. So that's called the fluting. Um, so one of the things that I did, which it's it's such a small thing, but for me it felt like a big deal, is instead of two uh, bits of fluting, I just did one curve. Oh, and okay. So, and that that makes uh, visually, you know, it's pretty striking. Mm-hmm. Um, for my five string, what I'm doing is I added an extra sound hole that was like a bit of a teardrop shape. Uh, between the bridge and the end of the fingerboard. Okay. Um, and I'm also using a uh, hop horn beam for the fingerboard instead of ebony, which is what most violins usually have for a fingerboard. Uh, like ebony is a, in a bit of trouble at the moment. And so I decided to just source domestically. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's a violin maker up in Brattleboro, Vermont, who just has hop horn beam in his backyard. 
Uh, so wow. <laughs> yeah, so he gave me a, a blank of it and I'm trying it out. Hopefully I'm not going to regret it, but <laughs> I think it looks pretty sexy. So yeah, That's I'm pretty cool. excited about it. Uh, yeah, just a lot of these things are kind of little like to, to the average eye, you probably wouldn't notice the differences from one violin to another, but for me, they're like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, where else have you, have you worked, uh, making violence? Uh, so I also worked at McCartan Violins in the Hope Artist Village. Okay. In Pawtucket. Uh, after I graduated, I pretty much started working there, uh, mm-hmm. like in 2013 or 14 or so. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where I learned to do like a lot of repairs and setups. Uh, I also had like my own little workspace in the back. So I was able to make at least one violin while I was there. Uh, okay. and before I left, that's when, uh, Morgan Eve started working there. Yeah. Morgan Eve's playing. Yeah. And so that's where we got to meet and hang out. And that, that was really nice. Yeah. She's an amazing person, amazing player. I've got to tour with her. So, um, yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah. She's, she's super cool. Uh, you know, someone who I'd love to have for a neighbor in Warren, Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. But yeah, um, I guess kind of moving on from there, though, like uh, I'd like to get into some of the bands that you play in and have played in and even yeah. some of the projects that you're part of. So um, what was the first, I guess, quote unquote, official band that you played in? <laughs> uh, technically, uh, it was my sophomore or junior year of high school, uh-huh. and I formed a trio with uh fellow string ensemble classmates there's kianzi who uh he plays violin and uh danielle and uh danielle Bellavo and she played cello and so we would like before string ensemble we would always uh or on the off days we would always like hang out under the stairs and just jam uh-huh. and we formed this like i guess avant-garde string group we were basically just making shit up um (laughs) we we called ourselves xylospongia (laughs) which uh are you are you familiar with the term xylospongia no no but so it is the sponge on a stick that romans used to wipe their butts all right (laughs) (laughs) so that was our group and so we used to uh we played once or twice at uh what's the art gallery that used to be right by patrick's pub holden street gallery did you ever go there do you know yeah i know uh i actually play in a band with him and uh but i never went to that that studio there oh cool so he was uh i went to that studio for his open mic soon after he stopped teaching at LaSalle because he used to be an English teacher there. Yeah. Um, and that's how I found out about that open mic. And that, I think that was my first open mic. Oh, okay. And then I left Berkeley. And then I before I left for Ireland, I introduced a bunch of friends from various circles to each other. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when I came back from Ireland, a bunch of those people had formed a band. And I was like, oh, 
well, that's cool, but maybe I want to join. <laughs> um, yeah, and so cool, I ended up joining that band. And so that's a band that I'm still a part of now. And uh, Ben, who's my partner in the Box Hunters, he's also in that band now. It's called the Ivy Leaf. Okay, uh, not yeah, the Ivy yeah. League, the Ivy Leaf. Yes. Uh, and so Irish Music Quartet, uh, it's me on the instruments that I play, and then Ben on like concertina, tenor guitar, singing, uh, and Dan Accardi, who's from Warren, Rhode Island, uh, who lives yep. in Boston now. He plays accordion and concertina and fiddle. Uh, and our other bandmate is Lindsay Straw, who she works up at the Music Emporium in Lexington. Oh, okay. Uh, she's amazing. She was my roommate in at Berkeley. Uh, she plays guitar and bazooki, probably banjo and mandolin, a great singer, amazing guitarist. She's so good. The other group that I have is a duo with my partner, Ben, who is playing Pokemon behind me. Uh, Hi, Ben. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, it's a group called the Vox Hunters, and uh, we've, we kind of play a little bit of everything, but uh, mm-hmm. at the moment we've been focusing a lot on music from Rhode Island. I'm assuming you're talking about your new record that just came out. Yes, fresh from the board. The Ocean State Songster Volume One. I have typed it out way too many times. Um, yeah. So when we first started playing, uh, so we're also domestic partners, and so we started dating. When did we start dating? Twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Yes. It was a while ago, but uh, we also we we were set up by a mutual friend, mutual musician friend, because, uh, yeah, mutual musician friend and started dating and playing music kind of at the same time. And that's how we sort of formed the group. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the time back in the day, we kind of just played, you know, whatever I, at, I only really played Irish music and a bit of old time music, uh-huh. uh, at that point. But Ben, uh, grew up playing, maritime music and irish music and also singing uh and singing wasn't really a thing that i did much of like i i sang but it was mostly just a yeah just like a singer songwriter kind of approach to things i didn't really there weren't really any traditional songs that i found that really spoke to me in the irish music world Mm -hmm. um but when i met ben that's when he really encouraged me to just sing more you know lots of maritime stuff english stuff uh, pub singing things, things that have choruses where people can join in. Yeah. And that's kind of where, yeah. And that's where we kind of found our voice 
uh, and our, our sound. And that's kind of like how we base a lot of our performances uh, around is just some sort of audience participation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not clapping on the one and three, but <laughs> singing along to the choruses yeah, and laughing along to our stupid jokes. <laughs> um, yeah. Things like that. And uh, pro we probably started doing like the Rhode Island music research, maybe three ish or four ish years ago. Um, I think uh when we started or the, the reason why we got into it was because we'd be going to these festivals around and a lot of the performers would say, Oh, well, you know, uh, I got this song from my family out in mm -hmm. Ohio, or this is an old logging song from Minnesota or, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. And we didn't really have anything like that, you know? So we decided, uh, that like, Oh, there's got to be Rhode Island songs. Rhode Island's been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there has to be something that isn't Rhode Island is famous for you. Which, um, I mean, like, is barely a Rhode Island song because most of the verses are about other states and it was written by New Yorkers. So mm -hmm. it doesn't count. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess like the Block Island Ferry jingle works. Uh, but so what we decided to do is we just started, we just just into Google typed Rhode Island ballad, you know, or just Providence broadside, you know, just like any, any of these keywords. Uh, okay. And it turned out that the internet is an amazing resource. And of course, you know, because Rhode Island has a bunch of libraries and historical societies, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the results pointed us to those uh, places. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, librarians are the best. We uh, consider them superheroes, and they're amazing. And they are our like, best resources for figuring, uh, trying to find out this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I played in a band that's similar to that. That was, um, we do sea shanties, and it kind of started that same way of um, just going to the library and just digging out records and stuff like that. So Yeah. Um, oh, is this for the PBD shanty thing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I played uh, with them when it was much louder and more uh, punk rock. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Sharks and Cruise and Mark Lambert and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. But so what was it uh, like finding um, what you needed to find for these songs? Like, were you able to find old recordings and kind of um, learn from them, or were you finding sheet music of these songs, or what were you coming across? It's uh, lots of sheet music and uh, broadsides. So if you're not familiar with the broadside, a broadside is uh, like a very, very thin sheet, like tissue paper thin uh, sheet of paper. Uh, that was sort of your way to get the news of the day. Uh, I think broadsides can be as old as date back from like the 1600s to like, I guess, turn of the century. Uh -huh. uh, and and it was, you know, your way to find out what was happening, what was the latest tragedy, what's who's got the best shoes. Uh, and <laughs> a lot of it was usually put into verse. Uh, oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So we've, we've sat, found some broadsides. One is uh, something along the lines of like a ballad 
uh, written on the occasion of the death of this person who was killed by a log that rolled on top of them. And it's like 15 verses. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so what? what's kind of cool about, uh, not, not that death is cool, I'm talking about what's cool about broadsides, uh, is that because, uh, you know, audio recordings didn't exist, uh, and sometimes you wouldn't, not everyone knew how to read sheet music. So mm-hmm. sometimes uh, the broadside would say the title and then underneath it would say uh, to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy or something like that. Oh, right. A yeah. lot of broadsides have that. And we definitely try to avoid just singing Yankee Doodle over and over again. <laughs> like um, here's 10 songs that sound just like Yankee Doodle with different lyrics. Yeah, in it. <laughs> yeah. So the, the cool thing about broadsides is that it was meant to be sung to whatever was the popular melody at the time. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes the, the ballads would be written and you could kind of tell that it was a parody of something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess maybe at the time it was handed out, you didn't need to say what it was because the, the melody was on everyone, everyone's mind anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so for us, sometimes we have to do like a bit of digging, and Ben is pretty good about figuring out what the uh, what the actual song is based on. Uh, yeah. But you know that's for us today. So if we were to get a broadside sheet uh, that didn't have any melodies applied and it wasn't clear that it's parodied after something, you know, the equivalent is us uh, using the melody for uh like see a chandelier you know something like that uh that, oh. that would be kind of like the equivalent uh and for us what we would have to do is not only try to find the original melody but if there was no melody supplied and we had no idea if it's referencing anything specific uh we would try to find something to fit over it and that okay. and that's pretty fun because uh, if we can't find anything, sometimes we'll just make up a melody. Yeah. Like how much are you bringing um, from your own minds into this, you know, you know, playing these traditional songs, you know, like. Yeah, I, I guess quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I find, or we find that like, if we listen to albums that are specifically made, to be historical recreations of these songs from this period of time. And it ends up kind of being a little like flat to yeah. us, not pitch wise, but just feeling wise. Yeah. Like, it, only, it really just feels like, you know, uh, here's this museum piece that we have packed yeah. and crammed into a CD. And when you listen to it, you will hear the glass case, yeah. you know, and yeah. behind the glass case is the actual thing. Um, but for us, if we were to do that, if we were to try to recreate the sound of each piece and tune, uh, everything would just sound completely, completely different. Like it wouldn't sound like us. Uh-huh. And we can't really, we can't really bring ourselves to put on accents or change the way we play and make and change uh 
you know, our, adapt ourselves to the tune. We make the tune or the song. We or we adapt it for yeah. us. Yeah, you know, we awesome. make it suit us. So we yeah. don't really. Uh, yeah. So so we're we're often changing lyrics. Uh, you know, if there's a lot of like thee and thou, uh, if it if it makes sense for the song, we'll keep it in. But sometimes we'll just say you. Yeah. <laughs> you and yours. Um, yeah. And a lot of the songs, because they're old songs and they're from a time in the past, there's, uh, you know, you'll occasionally come across things that are either misogynistic or racist or sexist or just not ideal to sing. So sometimes we'll just yeah. skip the verse, we'll change it, you know, yeah. we'll do something to it. Um, and I think as far as traditional music goes, that's, that's, uh, sticking with the tradition where, you know, we're adapting it to, for modern times. Yeah. And I think that's what makes us really enjoy the material that we play is that like, you know, it's fun for us and it's not just like a, we're, we're putting on this play for five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, cool. it's like, it's, yeah, it's like, it's something that's tangible and living and up to date. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to, to do. Let the bards from the north, from the south, east, and west all sing in the theme that suits them the best. Let them sing of baked beans and their puddings and pies, their hot apple dumplings and donuts likewise. The bard of Rhode Island no theme can afford but to sing of hot Johnny Cakes fresh from the board. Fresh from the board, fresh from the board, to sing of hot Johnny Cakes fresh from the board. Our neighboring farmers may plow, sow, and reap, and raise crops of barley, of rye, and buckwheat. But the soils of Rhode Island our farmers adorn with potatoes and plenty and abundance of corn. With butter and cheese, their cellars are stored, who relish hot Johnny Cakes fresh from the board. Fresh from the board, fresh from the board, to relish hot Johnny Cakes fresh from the one thing I do also want to bring up is that the artwork um, for the latest record and um, mm. the previous one is pretty incredible. Um, Thank you. So I just wanted to bring that up. Like, could you talk a little bit about um, the artist and, um, you know, why you work with that particular person other than it's awesome? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so Dan McDonald, uh, he's an artist who's, based out of Chicago, has no actual, no like Rhode Island roots at all, but he, mm-hmm. he uh, has come through and toured here because he's also a musician. Uh-huh. Um, he, his, perf- his stage name is Spitzer Space Telescope, if you've ever come across him at all. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I first met Dan, oh, I don't know, like five or six or so years ago. Do you remember a place called Leviathan Exchange? It's next, it's, it's right. It's across from classical, uh, high school, like where white electric is and that, that kind of shit. Um, it was, it was there. It was, it was run by, um, Phil Stewart and Tom Olson. Uh, Phil is Chrissy Stewart's brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was like a kind of secondhand clothing exchange store that was really awesome. But uh, it was also a place where you could perform. And so uh, that was the first time I met Dan was when we were kind of booked for that. Yeah. Uh, Dan, he did the album art for both of our albums for the first mm-hmm. one that we released in 2017 uh, and this most recent one. Uh, and, you know, all done on a tablet, not actually uh, woodblock. Uh, okay. Perfect. But yeah. that would be amazing. But he, he does a really good job of making yeah, it look yeah. like it. Yeah, it looks, uh, yeah, looks amazing. It's yeah, awesome. I, I just like, you know, we had this idea and wanted to include a bunch of uh, little references to things that we sing about mm-hmm. uh, throughout the album. Uh, so when you listen to the album and you look at the album art, you'll kind of notice these little things. Yeah, it ties together. Yeah, little Easter eggs. Cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, you said that you recorded at, what was it, Stable? Stable Sounds Stable Sounds Studio. Uh, it's yeah in Portsmouth, right? Uh, on like the Vanderbilt estate. Uh, Steve oh, okay. Rizzo. Do you know him? I don't know. He's yeah. He like doesn't have an online presence, but he's been recording artists in Rhode Island since like the seventies or eighties. Okay. Yeah, he's he's from Rhode Island, uh, and I think he's also like Billy Gilman's uh, like studio like he's where billy gilman records and yeah so uh mike renzi who's the original piano player for sesame street yeah 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 so <laughs> that like and then i think tony bennett's piano player records with steve it's so yeah. weird because he also has recorded all the folk musicians from back in the day mm-hmm. um which is also funny because he knows those folks from like the seventies, eighties and nineties. And I know the same people from the, the early aughts and onwards. Yeah. And, you know, there'll be times where we'll be in the recording studio and we'll just go, Hey, do you know, you know, so-and-so? I'll go, oh yeah. I just saw them the other day. Yeah. And, and then he'll kind of just look off out the window and go, Oh man. I just remember this one recording session (laughs) and there were, it's just drugs and just like loud, crazy antics, you know, apparently a lot of these mellow, mellow friends now are, were less mellow back in the day. Yeah. The plan. Yeah. There's these uh, quiet folk people. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So how did you connect with him? Was it from, from that name and the, folk scene or like were you did you search this place out or was it uh it just kind of happened i honestly have no idea okay i i I get it must because he has no online presence it must have been a mutual friend who was just like oh yeah it's you know you got to go either with this person this person this person and uh, steve was like the top of the list uh but was also the hardest to get a hold of but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now i have his number finally yeah to the place which yeah. so it's called stable sound studio because it's attached to a stable oh, okay yeah so uh like you you show up to the recording studio and there are horses running around outside his control room the back on the other side of the wall behind him is the 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 stable where the horses do all their running yeah stable yeah yeah <laughs> yep yeah, yeah. You, you get occasional horse sounds <laughs> wow yeah 
None, none made it into the album, unfortunately. Yeah, it would be kind of cool to have that, you know, like especially with what you're doing, you know. Yeah, I yeah I know I I, I would love to to get a nicely timed nay. <laughs> yeah, going and some accidental that. clopping in the back, you know. So, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as it's in time, so, you know. So yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And we can we can move things around. Yeah. So can you trot? Be. Can you trot to this click track horse? You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of seven eight? Yeah. <laughs> that horse was nuts. It was doing some crazy timing out there. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the benefits of having one short leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, what uh, other than having horses? What, what's what's the experience like recording there? Uh, it's great. Uh, it, it's it's a very chill living space as well. Really? It's, it's, yeah. He lives and he records. Um, it's like nice and dim. There's some fun and strange funky art and lots of funky couches and weird chandeliers uh Mm -hmm. lots of instruments it's it's nice i like it uh i kind of prefer that over you know just like a concrete room or something yeah yeah it it definitely it it also helps that uh steve and us we have like a good rapport so we're we're able to joke around and you know make keep things light yeah especially especially when things get frustrating in the recording Mm -hmm. studio it's as much as I love that recording studio. I just hate recording. Yeah, yeah. What it's, is the experience like uh, for you to record? I mean, I guess specifically with uh, uh, hunters, but any any bands. Like, what is the process like for you? Trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, it's much easier to to come in to do studio work. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I much prefer that just because, you know, I'm just there as my own person and I'm just here to add strings to the one thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's most of the track is completed or I don't have to worry about the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, but there's just more pressure on us because it's pretty much just the two of us uh, usually singing, usually playing more than one instrument. Yeah. Uh, and it's just... I don't know. We it, It's hard to go from being on a stage or in a room exchanging energy with the audience to just someone saying, okay, here we go, now recording. And you suddenly have a microphone and headphones on and yeah. this is not what you're used to and you can hear yourself in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a different experience and it's just hard to try to get that same energy going. I would say that like the the one comfort for us is that throughout the recording process for both albums, we've just like talked with other folk musicians and, you know, as soon as we ask them like, oh, so what's it been like for you? They'll just kind of start off with a sigh and go, <laughs> oh man, recording's a bitch. <laughs> yeah. You know, it usually ends up being something like that. Yeah. Uh, so it makes me feel better that it's not just us. That yeah, yeah. seems to be a pretty common thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely not ready for Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> or never want to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you did bring up that you uh, like sat in with uh, some musicians. Uh, can you talk about some of the people that you've recorded with as well? Yeah. Uh, 
my my favorite one is uh it was my first recording gig at berkeley is i was part of a string section for one of the dropkick murphy's albums oh that's awesome yeah i uh, the album's called the meanest of times it's the one with like the kid crossing his arms okay right yeah if you look at the liner notes my name's there but i'm not actually sure if you can hear the string section (laughs) uh but that's totally fine because my name is on the credits and that's kind of a fun thing yeah yeah um but yeah other than that though it's been a lot of uh like local artists. Yeah. Um, do you know Emily Goldstein and Savino? Yeah. Yeah. So former Rhode Islanders, they just moved out to LA, which yeah. we're so sad about because uh, we miss them so much. Um, but uh, like I've recorded on a few of their things uh-huh. uh, and some other friends, Morgan Johnson's another one. Uh, yeah. And uh, do you know Buck St. Thomas? I don't know. He was part, is part of Obi Howard, uh, the group with his wife, Alex. Um, So he's a film scorer. Okay. And so I I did some string work for some of his songs uh, and also his uh, animated short that came out a few months ago or like maybe half a year ago or so. Uh Uh-huh. and that was done in collaboration with uh, a guy who's from Rhode Island originally and lives in New York City. And he's done a bunch of like animation for, I think, like some now for like Adult Swim and Radio Lab and things like that. Uh, but the the short the short is called Eli, uh, mm-hmm. and it was actually uh, it was shown at Sundance. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna get to that point, but it's. Uh, pretty cool um so my 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 string playing is featured there yeah that's awesome yeah so that's kind of just like a a smattering of things and a lot of that recording was done either at like people's home studios or at uh big nice studios oh yeah yeah one of my favorite studios to to record i like that space a lot nice typically play i know you've said that you've done a lot of like the sessions um patrick and stuff like that but as mm-hmm. box hunters or as ivan youth and stuff like that like where do you typically play uh, in rhode island in rhode island uh so mentioned the blackstone river theater uh yeah. so not only do we volunteer there but also play there maybe like once or twice a season uh-huh. um we played at the Collaborative in Warren. Yeah. Uh, super awesome gallery space. Uh, Hope in Maine. We've done two New Year's Eve events. Oh, nice. There. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, did that. So it was a, 
the way we set it up was we would do a 20 or 25 minute set with X performer. And mm-hmm. as soon as that performer was done, the next performer would be in the back room and immediately start a 10 minute pub sing. Wow. And that would be the transition for, uh, it would be a nice break for the audience and a way to engage the audience to get them singing and do something different. And as soon as the 10 minutes was over, uh, the next group would be on stage. And we would do that two more times, and then we would have a square dance. Uh, yeah, so we would start the square dance at around like 11.15. And at 11.45, we would teach a super easy square dance and count down to midnight. And at midnight, we would uh, kind of play it in the new year, and everyone would do a square dance at midnight to Old Lang Syne as an old-time tune. Wow. Yeah, it, it worked creative. out. That's cool. Yeah, that was done in collaboration with uh, Common Fence. Music. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so so we've played there as well. Yeah. Uh, Lily pads, Lily pads. Yeah, in Wakefield and the Pump House, um, AS220, as as everyone does. Um, oh, and do you remember <laughs> One Eighty Six Carpenter Street? I don't. Oh, man. It used to be a gallery space that was owned by a woman named Jory, who's in the uh, What Cheer Brigade. Okay. Um, but she owns a gallery on Sutton Street now. But it was one of my favorite venues. It was it's it was an art gallery uh, space that was nice and small, wooden, right on the corner of a street, so people could walk by and see. Yeah. And you could just have concerts. Uh events there it was just like so cheap to use and it was a really good community we used to have an open mic there oh man that was like our, our favorite venue because you didn't have to plug in yeah yeah so uh, when you can uh, play a place and it's just like show up with their instrument and it sounds good and it's kind of has that yeah you know, house shows house venues yeah. i those are like our favorites i i much prefer them over like like public music venues, but I also like playing at the music venues too, because it's, it's a nice way to support a business. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Are you guys doing any like live stream stuff or? Yeah, we're doing, we're doing uh, a few. We're about to do some panel discussion about like folk musicians and, and dealing with technology in the, yeah in the now times yeah Uh, we're probably going to be doing a streaming concert through common fence really soon and we're also going to be doing a set for bluegrass pride at the end of june uh for with our friend and our our neighbor including yours uh who is new to rhode island jake blunt cool yeah yeah so so that'll be pretty fun that's nice yeah it's oh and we're also going to be doing uh contributing a 10 minute set to one of Chris Monty's uh, side projects. He's doing. Uh, do you know? You know Chris Monty, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that the variety show that he's? Yeah, variety show. Often plays at the parlor as well. Yeah. Um. But he's he's doing like a I think a weekly show showcasing four different Rhode Island artists. You know, oh, okay. minute contribution. It's called Pandemic Baby because he's having a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So doing that really soon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a little tough for us to get around to scheduling one just because we really rely on the, the audience interaction. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, 
I mean, honestly, it's just not as fun. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, but I do appreciate that a lot of people are getting on, like hopping on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a... learning how to harness it. Yeah, or wrangle it rather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up um, about the bands that you played in, or anything else that I may have missed? I mean, uh, if you're interested in music from Rhode Island, or if you even want to know what Rhode Island music sounds like or could have sounded like back in the day, or if you want to know more about Rhode Island history, then check out uh, our new album. Uh, What is it called? Fresh from the Board, Music from the Ocean State Songster, Volume 1, which is the uh, companion piece to our book that was released in 2018, which is the Ocean State Songster, Volume 1. Nice. Yeah, so they work hand in hand. Uh, The book has, uh, let's see here, I have it over here, the the, the rough home copy. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, it's just a little booklet. It was printed by DWRI Letterpress. Yeah. By Broad Street. And uh, Hope Anderson is one of our landlords who also works for Dan Wood at the Letterpress shop. <laughs> so that works out pretty nicely. Um, but yeah, there's, so there's 29 songs and 27 tunes. It's got the sheet music and words uh, adapted and otherwise. Uh, and so if you have the book and you want to know how we would interpret some of these things, buy the yeah. album. That's awesome. Yeah, you can get that from our band camp. A pretty crazy endeavor of coming up with that as well, right? Like putting a book together. Yeah, it was it was something that we had planned to do uh, when we first started doing the research, and we thought like, oh yeah, like ten years from now we'll just do that thing where we release a five thousand page book. Uh, yeah, and then realized it would actually sell much better, and it's easier to carry if we just make booklets yeah <laughs> in volumes and yeah, then yeah. once we have you know 20 volumes or whatever then we'll make the big book yeah yeah but uh that and also if uh, so you can get that from our website either the voxhunters.com or the voxhunters.bandcamp.com uh, <laughs> and if you need any sort of instrument repair or you want to pay me to make you a normal looking violin or a crazy looking violin yeah with gold leaf on it uh you can contact me my website is aramin a-r-o-m-i-n araminviolins.com which i rarely update but it does have a contact page (laughs) oh or and just follow us on instagram to stay up to date because that's the thing that we keep up with the most other than facebook cool yeah. What uh, would you say is your greatest musical accomplishment? I I guess currently putting out this album. Yeah, that's a big one. That's that's it's it's, it's eighteen pretty, tracks. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and well, hmm. Okay, so that's one of them. But I yeah. think the other great musical accomplishment, maybe for me, is uh, just building and being part of and nurturing uh the local folk music community here in rhode island cool yeah i think i think that would probably be the i don't know it's weird to call that an accomplishment because it makes it sound like it was just me that 
was responsible for making it happen. But um, yeah, but just being a part of that, just I mean, yeah, just being a part of it keeping and these songs like you're like you know reviving these songs, you're keeping some stuff alive, you're bringing a lot of attention to um, a lot of songs that yeah 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 and so actually so uh going back to the music community uh the other thing that we wanted to do uh me and ben uh is start a pub sing and kind of foster a stronger (laughs) folk music community in providence and rhode island in general uh so pub sings are these events where you go it's a free event usually should be uh you show up to some sort of bar or restaurant and y'all just uh patronize the establishment patronize in that good way uh and just sing songs acapella around beer and food and camaraderie and good times and sweet harmonies or not so sweet harmonies but it doesn't matter because it's all about um being vulnerable with each other and just singing yeah Uh, and uh, that happens a lot at festivals and we wanted to make that happen in Providence. So uh, a couple of friends, you know, got, got a couple of pub sings started in at Nickonies. Uh, and then yeah. we also started hosting them at flatbread pizza. Uh, and actually before flatbread pizza, we hosted the last pub sing at federal Hill pizza around the corner. Cool. So, yeah. But pizza and pub sings aren't necessarily a thing, but maybe it's a Providence <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and if we move to Warren, <laughs> maybe we'll do it at another pizza place. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so it, it's been really cool because we've we've just seen a lot of growth uh, mm-hmm. in in our friends who went from being, you know, people who would probably say, "Oh, I I don't think I'm going to lead any songs tonight," or "I don't really have any songs." call on me next time uh, yeah. to the same person, you know, months later or a year later, just going all in and being like, I'm going to lead the song. Here I go. Wow. Yeah. It's, That's it's, really cool. it's really, really cool. And it's, uh, it's something that has kept us relatively sane during this time. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Armin. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, a lot of fun. And, I look forward to seeing you in the neighborhood. Of all the true hosts that New England can boast From down by the sea unto Highland No state is more true or more willing to do than the dear little Yankee Rhode Island. Loyal and true little roadie, bully for you little roadie. Governor Sprague was not very vague when he said shoulder arms little roadie. Word at all at the president's call, nor yet with the air of a toady. The gay little state, not a moment too late, sends soldiers to answer for Rody. Loyal and true.
very vague when he said shoulder arms little 